Lord, you are king. I pray that in our time together now that we will worship you. Thank you for the privilege that we have of knowing you, Lord. But as we talk about this topic of worship, we confess it's so easy to get distracted by so many different topics, so many different distractions, things that pull our attention off of you. And so I pray that now as you open the scripture, that you open our hearts and our minds in fresh ways to behold your glory. I pray that you'll captivate us with the greatness of who you are as we talk about adventures that the early church experienced in ministry, that you will capture our hearts with the adventure that we get of following Jesus and of serving in his kingdom in the world around us. So please guide us, Lord. I pray that, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight. Please teach us, Lord, through your word now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in a series right now that is on the origin story of the church, where we're going back to the beginning to see how the church started so that we can learn not only what happened then, but also what, how it impacts our lives now. And we're doing this origin story through the book of Acts. So I invite you to turn in the Bible to Acts chapter 8. And if you're using a Bible from the pew, Acts 8 is on page 1104. Now we're about one quarter of the way through the book of Acts, and it's been an exciting journey so far. We've seen a lot happening. We've seen the church grow numerically in amazing ways, into the tens of thousands by this point. We've also seen some significant pushback from the Jewish leaders. It included threatening the early church, imprisoning some people, uh, even beating a few of the Christians. Now, Last week, if you were here last week, you saw that the pushback against the early Christians went to a completely different level because there was this early church leader named Stephen who was murdered by the Jewish leaders. And when someone dies in that way, it really ratchets up the serious level of what's taking place. It skyrockets. Now, this pushback from the Jews was not really a surprise. I mean, you just think about how the Jewish leaders treated Jesus. They crucified him. And so it was not a surprise the early church operating in the name of Jesus would experience pushback as well. And in fact, Jesus himself said, if they persecute me, they will persecute you as well. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I've overcome the world. And so we can have a confidence and hope through Jesus Yet that doesn't mean that all of our circumstances will be easy. Now as we move forward in Acts, we're going to see that persecution against the church was increasing in big ways. Acts chapter 8 verses 1 and 2 says, There arose in that day, which was the day that Stephen was killed, it says there arose in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And then verse 3 says there was a Jewish leader named Saul who was leading the persecution. It says that Saul, quote, was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And so the persecution became organized. It became systematic, and it was against ordinary, everyday Christians. Saul was taking soldiers, and he was going from one house to the next, looking for who was the Christians, and then he would take them and imprison them. 
or even worse. And so the result was that many Christians were driven from their homes by persecution and violence. They became refugees. Verse 2 says they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now let me show you a map of this area just to help us get a picture, a mental image of what was taking place. You have the city of Jerusalem. I marked it with the yellow star there. That was where most of the Christians were concentrated in the early church up to this point, up to Acts chapter 8. But then it says that Christians during this persecution went out to surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria. Those were not cities. They were regions, kind of like counties or states. Now in Acts 1.8, Jesus said, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 8 serves as a turning point, where up to this point, almost all the church activity took place in Jerusalem, in that one city. But then, starting in Acts chapter 8 that we're looking at today, it expanded beyond that to the regions around there, to Judea and north to Samaria, these other regions. And the catalyst for that expansion was persecution. Now, as the Christians scattered, they continued telling people about Jesus. Acts 8.4 says that now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So even as they left their homes against their will, they kept the main mission and focus of telling people about Jesus. I think about the alternatives of how they could have responded to that persecution having to leave their homes. They could have just stomped their foot and said, this is not fair, I don't like this one bit. And they could have let that, that frustration boil over and well up just in bitterness and anger. On the, on the other hand, they could have just moped around just saying, woe is me. They could have thrown a pity party just uh, so upset at what's taking place and not liking it at all. And, and to be sure, they probably did not like the circumstances, but they still were intentional to tell people about Jesus even as they left the city and went into new lands. They had the gospel message, which was so important and so beautiful that nothing could stop them from pointing to Jesus. And so a practical application for us is that we will face hardships, but these can create opportunities for ministry. I mean, think about them back then. No one wanted to relocate. No one wanted to leave their house, their possessions, their business, family, friends, church. They didn't want that. No one wanted to leave their familiar routines and places. But they did. And it created an opportunity for ministry. I mean, today, no one wants to have two detached retinas and nine surgeries in two and a half years like I did recently. No one wants to lose a loved one. No one wants to be laid off from their job. No teenager wants to be ignored by the popular kids. No child wants their favorite toy to be accidentally broken by a friend. These are hardships. But these hardships create opportunities for ministry. 
And if you're at a job and you're part of a group that gets laid off from that job, it can create an opportunity to minister to your coworkers amidst their frustration or fear and uncertainty. If you go through cancer, it can create an opportunity to minister to others who are facing cancer or to their family members. If you have a toy broken by a friend, it can create an opportunity to demonstrate forgiveness and reconciliation. We will face hardships. It's reality in this world. But these hardships can create opportunities for ministry if only we have eyes to see and a readiness to make the most of the opportunities. Now the rest of today's passage focuses on one guy who made the most of his opportunities. I invite you to follow along as I read Acts, 5, or Acts chapter 8. Verses 5 through 8. It says that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who, heard, who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. And so we see that Philip was among those who took the gospel to Samaria. Now, Philip's name has already come up just a little bit in the book of Acts. A couple weeks ago, he was in a passage that listed about how there are these seven leaders who were appointed to help with the distribution of food among, in the church to widows. Philip was one of those seven. Now, Philip was also one of those who fled Jerusalem amidst the persecution, and he headed north to Samaria. And this was a big deal to go into Samaria, because Jews despised Samaritans. The animosity went back hundreds of years. It was based on both racial issues as well as religious issues. I mean, Jews, they would call Samaritans dogs, they did not want to associate with Samaritans. They despised Samaritans. Back when I was in my early 20s, I was on a two-month missions trip in Chicago. We got to minister in a lot of really interesting communities, interesting opportunities. I even got to spend a few days in the juvenile detention center in Chicago. They have a school in that center. And I was able to spend a few days just ministering there in that school. It was really a, a knee opportunity, very memorable. Now, one morning, I was with a group of people on this mission strip. We didn't have much to do, so we decided, let's just go out in this neighborhood and pick up trash from the streets. It was, just, it was clear in this neighborhood that the, the streets were not well cleaned up, um, and we thought this is a way we can just you know, help out in practical ways. We might be able to get in some conversations that could point to spiritual topics in Jesus. In this particular neighborhood that we were in, it was a very run-down neighborhood at that point in time. It was 97% black, and as we were there picking up trash in that neighborhood, it was along a pretty busy street that cut through that neighborhood. There was a, a white guy who pulled up in a silver Mercedes. He was wearing a suit, and he pulled up, and he asked us what we were doing. And we tried to explain what we were doing out there that day, but then he interjected, he interrupted us, and said angrily, these people don't deserve this. And then he sped away without saying anything else or listening to anything else we had to say. These people don't deserve this. And that's how Jews felt towards Samaritans. These people don't deserve this. 
They are, they are just degenerate scumbags, was their mentality. But you look at Philip and the other Christians. They went intentionally into that region. They went there and pointed them to Jesus. And they helped the Samaritans in practical ways as well. In verse 8, it says that Philip's ministry brought great joy to the Samaritans. Now listen to what happens next, picking up in verse 9. It says, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he'd amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So we see here that an influencer named Simon turned to Jesus. And Simon was a celebrity in Samaria. It says that he had previously practiced magic. Now this was not magic based on illusions and sleights of hand like you see if there's a magic show down at the local library or if you go to the Rick Wilcox Magic Theater in the Dells. It's not that type of magic. No, this type of magic that Simon practiced was witchcraft and sorcery. It had a dark demonic power. Now Simon had become rich through his magic. And he had become famous throughout Samaria. Verses 10 and 11 say that all the Samaritans paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Now above all else, Simon promoted himself as somebody great. Verse 9 says that he amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. So he was a salesman who got people to buy into his greatness. And in fact, people viewed him as a god. It says, or they said that this man 
is the power of God that is called great. But then Simon encountered Philip. And he heard about Jesus. He saw miracles that, that God was doing through Philip. And Simon was amazed at this true power that he saw in and through Philip. So Simon then believed in Jesus. He was baptized. And he became a follower of Philip, which means that wherever Philip went, Simon would go with him just to continue to learn from Philip, to see what Philip was doing. Now, several times in the series, I have talked about what I call the package deal of conversion, which consists of faith, repentance, baptism, salvation, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, typically, all these happen at approximately the same time when a person uh, turns to Jesus. That's the model we generally see in Acts, all these different things generally happening at about the same time. But here in Acts chapter 8, even though these Samaritan people believed in Jesus and they were baptized, we see that there was a delay in the Holy Spirit coming upon them and indwelling them. It's only after Peter and John, who were the main leaders in the church in Jerusalem, they came, they prayed over those people, they laid hands on those people, that is when the Holy Spirit came upon these Samaritan new Christians. And so the question is, why did it happen this way? Why was there this delay in the arrival of the Holy Spirit? Well, let me give you my best attempt at explaining what was going on here. For the early Christians, the coming of the Holy Spirit in a dramatic way was a sign of God's approval or God's work in that situation. And especially, it testified to everyone that the people who receive the Holy Spirit have God's stamp of approval. We see it here in Acts 8 as the gospel goes to the Samaritans for the first time. We see it again in Acts chapter 10 when Gentiles turn to Jesus for the first time. We see it again in Acts chapter 19 when there is this group of, of people from the city of Ephesus who turned to Jesus. The Holy Spirit came upon them in a dramatic way as a way of signaling to those Ephesians they are truly Christians. And so I think this delay in the arrival of the Holy Spirit was to confirm to everyone, especially to the Jewish Christians, that God accepted Samaritans through Jesus, just like he accepted Jews through faith in Jesus. God was uniting a diverse people through Jesus. Now Simon, remember Simon, that, that former magician, sorcerer guy? He saw what happened through Philip and through the Holy Spirit. And Simon wanted to buy the power to distribute the Holy Spirit. Now Peter then quickly rebuked Simon, indicating that Simon was still motivated by greed and by pride, by the same things that had characterized him prior to turning to Jesus. We have to understand that many times sins and issues that characterize someone prior to turning to Jesus continue to influence them after they turn to Jesus. And so when a person like Simon is proud and arrogant, or when he is greedy and selfish, these types of sins run deep in that person's psyche. And they generally don't disappear quickly after a person turns to Jesus. So Peter rebuked Simon. Now Simon, to his credit, responded, I think, in a positive way to the rebuke. He said to Peter, pray for me to the Lord. 
that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, to me, this seems like a promising sign of humility, a a sign of, of repentance, wanting to do what's right. But realistically, we don't really know what happens next because there's nothing else recorded in Scripture or elsewhere about what happened with Simon after this. But this does show another practical application, that discipleship is important, not just conversion. I mean, it's natural for Christians to get excited when someone turns to Jesus for the first time. I mean, this truly is a reason to celebrate. I mean, I have seen Christians especially get super excited when a celebrity turns to Jesus or they proclaim that they've turned to Jesus. I think in recent years of Kanye West and Justin Bieber, how they publicly proclaimed that they had turned to Jesus. And I think of how many Christians were super excited about the impact that God could have through these celebrities for the sake of Jesus. But we must remember that discipleship is important, not just conversion. For several years before I went to seminary, I was on staff with a college ministry. The ministry was called Crew, and and one of the main focuses of this ministry was evangelism, was pointing college students to Jesus. And one of the things the staff team did was was keep track of people who'd turned to Jesus, from what we could tell. And we we had a list of them. We were praying through through that list on a regular basis. We were kind of tracking of, you know, how are they doing spiritually and, and stuff like that. One of the things that happened over the course of the months is after someone turned to Jesus, many of them, uh, their their zeal for Jesus would wear off. And they would lose interest in following him, even after just a handful of months, despite our best efforts to invest in them and to help them grow. It shows that it's important to keep growing after you initially turn to Jesus. In the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus did not say, make converts he said make disciples and the christian faith what matters is not so much how you start it's how you grow and how you finish in the faith discipleship is important that's why jesus said in that same great commission to teach them to obey everything i have commanded you so discipleship is important now you look at simon the sorcerer, he, he was as big of a social influencer as there was in Samaria. I mean, he was like the Kanye West, the Justin Bieber of Samaria. And when a bunch of Samaritans were turning to Jesus, all the indicators were that Simon turned to Jesus as well. Verse 13 says that he believed and was baptized. And so I think from the best that we can tell that he truly was a baby Christian at that point. But Simon illustrates that even when someone confesses their faith in Christ, they can still be theologically wrong. And even for Christians who've been following Jesus for many years, it's still very possible and even probable that they will be wrong in some things. I mean, the Bible is fully trustworthy and accurate. But that does not mean that our interpretations of the Bible are always accurate or our perceptions of things are always accurate and trustworthy. No, we need to have the humility to be open to other people correcting us. We need to be willing to be intentional to continue to grow over the course of our lives. So it begs the question, are you growing spiritually? Am I growing? I mean, you think about a little baby. 
When a baby is born, I mean, the baby can be cute. The baby is pretty helpless. The baby's dependent on others. Oftentimes, there's excitement around that baby. But the goal is not for the baby to remain a baby. You want to see the baby grow up. And likewise, spiritually, yes, we start when we turn to Jesus as, as Christian infants. But the goal is to grow. So are we growing? Or are we still spiritual infants? Or are we on spiritual cruise control? Where, yeah, we've grown a lot in the past, but at this point we're just kind of floating along, not really growing. We, we need to understand that discipleship is a lifelong process of continuing to be refined to become more like Jesus. Now the final verse in today's passage, verse 25, says, now, now when Peter and John had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now did you catch that? They're still in Samaria at that point, continuing to point Samaritans to Jesus. This points to our final practical application. The gospel's good news is available to all people. Now the Jews would have been inclined to exclude Samaritans. Saying, you know what, they are not worthy. They do not deserve this. But there are no categories of people and there are no individuals who we should look at and say, they don't deserve the gospel. Now the reality is, no one actually deserves the gospel. When Jesus died on the cross, he died to pay the penalty for sin. And we all are sinful people. We all are sinners. None of us deserve the grace that Jesus offers to us. And so we should never have the attitude that we are more deserving of the gospel than someone else is. The gospel is good news that's available to anyone. Gospel is a word that literally means good news. And that's what Jesus makes available to us through his life, death, and resurrection. It's good news available to all people, including Samaritans, including sorcerers, including anyone else who we may be tempted to look down on. The gospel is good news that's available to all people. And I want to point out how Philip, as he went to Samaria, he led with the gospel. His focus was on pointing people to Jesus. Yes, he could have pointed out things in their lifestyle that were all messed up, but he pointed people first and foremost to Jesus because he knew Jesus is what people need more than anything else. More than reforming their moral lives, more than following a list of rules, they needed Jesus. I mean, after people come to Jesus, there oftentimes are issues that still need to be addressed. That's what we see with Simon the sorcerer. We see that Simon, after he turned to Jesus, he still had sin in his life that needed to be addressed. But the time to really be focusing on that and helping him grow through that is after he turns to Jesus, because what he needed first and foremost was Jesus. Because think about if the sequence had switched. Think about if he never turned to Jesus, but instead reformed his sorcerer ways. If he turned away from his, his dark demonic magic, if he reformed his life morally, he got his life worked out morally, but he never turned to Jesus, he still would not have eternal life. He would still not have forgiveness from God. 
That only comes through Jesus. So it's important as individuals at a church to first and foremost point people to Jesus. And then along the way after that, after people turn to Jesus as their Lord and Savior, then there will be things that do pop up. But we have to make sure that we lead by pointing people to Jesus. This is central to our calling as Christians and as a church. To point people to Jesus, not merely to morality, not merely to rules, not merely to, to judgment, but point them to Jesus, who is Savior and Lord and is worthy of our wholehearted devotion and worship. Because when you really think about what makes the gospel good news, what makes the gospel beautiful, it is Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are worthy of all praise, all glory. And Lord, I pray that in those parts of our lives that we are complacent, in those ways that we are living um, just distracted lives or with half-heartedness, that you will awaken us and turn us to yourself in spirit and in truth. Lord Jesus, we've seen today adventures that the early church had in ministry. It was messy at times. When we look at the world around us and we see things that are messy. There's a lot of complexity. It can be hard at times to know how do we respond to this or that? How do we handle this situation or that person? But Lord, I pray that we will be focused on you and that we will be focused on pointing people to you. That that will be the hallmark of our lives and our church, pointing people to to Jesus, because Jesus, you are what people need more than anything else. And so, Lord, I pray that you will work in us to refine us, to be more like you, and that you will work through us to point more people to Jesus. For he gives us a hope and a confidence like nothing else can. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.